Good morning. I'm Dr. Hans House. I'm the program director for the emergency medicine residency at the University of Iowa. And we'll be talking today about alcohol abuse. When I'm talking about alcohol in this presentation, I'm referring specifically to ethanol. Now, of course, we know that a number of different alcohols, ethanol is just one example of, eth of an alcohol, uh, ethanol, glycol, methanol, various other agents are important in medicine, but just for the purpose of this talk, we're going to, for now, just refer to it as alcohol. Alcohol abuse is defined as social or medical problems that result from inappropriate use, but without evidence of dependence. Okay, so basically Saturday night here in Iowa City is alcohol abuse. Alcoholism is alcohol dependence, and this is regular use that results in tolerance, and tolerance is the likelihood of withdrawal symptoms if intake were to stop. 3% uh, refers to a lot of different elements of the epidemiology of alcohol. The prevalence of alcoholism in this country is approximately 3% of the population. Uh, another 3% of the population at any given time um, is participating in alcohol abuse. And according to Sintinelli, 3% of all presentations to the ER have a direct are directly resulting from uh, alcohol intake. Now, that seems a little low to me, especially on a Saturday night, but uh, that they report. Now, alcoholism is a very multifactorial pathogenesis. It comes from a lot of different sources. It's environmental, it's genetic. There's multiple multiple causes going into it. It is characterized by an impaired control over people's drinking. Subjects are preoccupied with, uh, with ethanol. They use alcohol despite negative consequences. They have a distortion in their thinking about their drinking. Denial is an element of the disease. And it affects all age and all socioeconomic groups. It affects all ages and all socioeconomic groups. We think about alcoholic as being the bum, as being the homeless person, but very functional, very public figures can also um, suffer from it. And this is a picture of Larry Stacey, our Iowa State basketball coach who was recently resigned due to alcoholism. Alcoholics certainly have a profound negative effect on their their health. Alcoholics have a 10 to 15 year shorter lifespan. Of course, they have an increased risk of accidents, but not just that. Um, they also have liver disease, which we see all the time. They have a higher rate of certain cancers, especially cancers of the upper digestive tract, uh, mouth, head, neck, uh, esophagus, stomach. Alcohol has a synergistic effect with other carcinogens such as smoke to promote these cancers. Also, it can cause can pa pancreatic cancer, and there is a small association with breast cancer. In terms of cardiovascular, alcohol does have a negative consequence on the cardiovascular system. Now, we don't we usually think of alcohol being protective, and it is in moderation, certainly in terms of someone's cholesterol profile, in terms of their lipid profile. But heavy intake will cause cardiomyopathy directly and hypertension indirectly, which, of course, can result in a number of cardiovascular conditions. Trauma. Interesting note about trauma. Yes, chronic alcoholics will have a higher morbidity and mortality from trauma, but not directly related to their intoxication. Acute intoxication is not associated with increased morbidity, but chronic alcoholism is, probably related more 
to their associated comorbidities with their alcoholism. They're basically decreased health status. They're less likely to survive the trauma they get into. This picture here to the right, um, if you may recognize as, yes, it is the scene from Paris where Lady Diana's uh, 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 vehicle crash. In terms of head injury, now this is an important discussion about patients in the emergency room who come in who are drunk. Who gets a head CT? What do you think? Who gets a head CT if 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 you're drunk? Well, not everybody. You don't have you don't have to do a CT scan on every single patient. So which ones do you do it on? And it's difficult difficult to answer. Basically, you want to follow the same rules that you follow for anybody else. If you have a low GCS, then you are of a higher likelihood of having a significant intracranial injury, and you probably want to go ahead and do a scan. So if you have a low GCS just because you're inebriated and you are unconscious, do you have to do a head scan on every single patient? No, not really. If you can observe them, and by observing them, I do not mean putting them in the back corner or the back hallway of the ER and forgetting me until morning and saying, oh, well, that's just a drunk. We need to sober them up and we'll check them in the morning. No. When I'm talking about observing them, I'm talking about waking them up every 30 minutes, waking them up every half hour, making sure that they respond, continue to check them, check their progression. And if they don't progress within a couple hours, if there's no progression and improvement, yes, you absolutely need to scan them. If they have any evidence of head trauma, any evidence of trauma anywhere, you need to scan them. And for God's sakes, undress them. And this may be a very unpleasant situation for some alcoholics, but get their clothes off. Look at their bodies. We've certainly all had our share of mistakes where we've missed injuries, and these are the people people that fall down. They're going to have a higher rate of injuries in general. They're going to fall more often. They're going to have a higher rate of head injuries because of the falls and because of the brain atrophy, which will stretch stretch the bridging veins. Once you decide that you're going to get a head CT, regardless of how uncooperative the patient is, you've got to get that CT. So sedate them if necessary. Now, regarding decreased GCS, Ron Walls, the... uh, Great physician who uh, advocate who talks a lot about airway control had a wonderful quote about brain function and profanity. Basic profanity profanity is a basic brain function from the from the from the amygdala. Just saying shit shit that doesn't take much brain. But directed profanity, saying F you and pointing and directly at the physician, that requires a higher cortical function. That is a high level of GCS. Just a little pro from one. Thank you. Alcohol and hypothermia. Certainly everyone here in Iowa uh, has, has extensive personal experience with outdoor sporting events, cold weather, and certain alcoholic beverages. There's a synergistic effect with alcohol and hypothermia for a number of reasons. The sedative effect of alcohol is going to make you feel better. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to have an analgesic effect. You're not going to feel as cold. You're going to do behaviors that's going to more likely increase your exposure. Like pulling out for shirt, going, yeah, go team, go Hawkeyes, in the middle of driving blizzard. It also increases vasodilation, so it inhibits the regulatory mechanism of peripheral vasoconstriction when you're cold. It'll directly depress central thermoregulatory mechanisms. It's going to decrease shivering. So you're going to have a synergistic effect. You're going to have a colder body temperature if we drink alcohol withdrawal. We've certainly all dealt with alcohol withdrawal.
to it, though. I mean... So, the... Um, oops. Removal has a withdrawal. It's characterized by tremor, autonomic hyperactivity, ultramalostasis, and, and sometimes seizures. What is autonomic hyperactivity? What do we mean by that? We're talking about tachycardia, right. We're talking about elevated blood pressure, tachypnea, fever. Okay, uh, once again, in emergency medicine, it comes back to vital signs. Again, vital signs are vital. Look at the person's vital sign. If, if they're tachycardic and hypertensive, think about alcohol withdrawal. It's a possibility. Okay, this is going to be missed, so this is something to, to make sure that we, we notice. If someone has CNS findings, ultramental status seizures, that indicates more severe disease. That's delirium tremens and has a higher mortality rate. It really needs to be treated. How do you treat it? Benzodiazepines. You just give benzodiazepines IV, you treat it, and titrate to their response. Which benzodiazepines you use probably doesn't really matter. Uh, however, there is some randomized control evidence suggesting that lorazepam uh, has a decreased rate of seizure recurrence. In terms of outcomes, they'll do the fine. They'll do fine. It doesn't matter which one you use. When you're treating someone for alcohol withdrawal or you're treating them for alcohol intoxication, Think about treating them for hypomagnesemia, hypomagnesemia, very common in alcoholics, alcoholic ketoacidosis, and take a look for abdomenolysis. Think about sending UA, maybe doing a CK, especially if they've been down for a while. It's going to be kind of a common problem. What's alcohol ketoacidosis? What is that? When people drink, they use up the glycogen stores in their liver, and alcoholics may be have depleted their glycogen stores and they will go then into a state of ketosis. Look for this with sugars that are fairly normal, usually in the 150-200 range, but um, they have a anagap acidosis. And how is it treated? Simple. Right, replace the glycogen, give them sugar. Okay, so if we're giving them a D5 in their, in their line, giving them something to, to eat, uh, treating them with fluids. Do you have to use a banana bag? Do you have to give people a banana bag? Do you have to people give them multivitamins? No, not, not really. Most of the time, most um, certainly all the patients we treat here, uh, all our students that we treat here, the patient we treat on a Saturday night, those patients are fairly healthy otherwise, and they're not malnourished. And giving them multivitamins isn't really going to do any good whatsoever. Um, do you give thiamine to every single patient? You probably don't have to. Certainly you can um, address those that you think might have Wernicke's. Um, if someone's otherwise healthy, um, leaving out the vitamins is going to save you some, save you some money. Not really, not essential. It really doesn't doesn't change outcome very greatly. But think about in the patients that are that are very um, malnourished. So we keep talking about addressing alcoholism and and, and and recognizing it. What do you do about an ED? Can you do anything bad in ED? Does it make any difference to do an intervention? Well, yes, and repeated surveys, repeated evidence, repeated outcome measures have demonstrated that an intervention in a clinical setting, and that includes the emergency department, will result in reduced consumption, less injuries, better health for the patient. Are you going to affect change every time you do an intervention? Absolutely not. Is every person going to be ready to quit when you talk to them? Of course not. But by at least addressing that as a possibility, you're going to pick up somebody you're going to, if they hear it multiple times, you're, they're going to be more likely to change. You're going to pick up patients that are really ready to seek help. How do you screen for alcoholism? Probably one of the best methods is when we talked about in medical school, the cage questions. 
uh, they have uh, they work in the primary care setting. They also have been validated for use in the emergency department. 75% sensitivity and a very high 90% specificity for being positive to two or more questions of the cage questions. What are the cage questions? Again, C, do you feel you need to cut down on your drinking? A, do you get annoyed by people other, other people criticizing your drinking? G, do you feel guilty about your drinking? And E, do you feel a need for an eye opener? What's a brief negotiated interview? Basically, it's a method. Um, now, the textbook says it's brief. It only takes 10 minutes. Well, 10 minutes for a discharge is actually a fair amount of time in the ED. But um, it is a brief interview that you can at least bring up the idea of possibly getting help. It is very is, is very easy to do, and the process of taking your history and physical throughout their ED stay, not just the discharge point, you can probably uh, do one of these uh, BNIs. First step, establish rapport. This is something we're going to do with every patient anyway. Talk to them. Um, explore their current use. Use reflective answering. Um, assess the readiness to change. Ask them. Ask them if they're ready to change. Ask them if they're ready to quit. Most time they're going to say no. Sometimes they're going to say they're ready to get help. If they and if they and if that's what they want, offer them a referral. Offer them a referral to to substance abuse counseling. Um, document, you know, negotiate a plan on how they're going to get better and document it. Provide them written documentation of the referral. Alcohol, as you may know, has a very long and distinguished history. Fermented drinks of various sorts are well documented throughout ancient history. Uh, this is here is a. Egyptian hieroglyphics from uh, tomb in uh, Egypt uh, demonstrating a servant providing wine to a master. The uh, a recipe for beer from Egypt has survived and was actually recreated. In Mesopotamia, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, which is one of the first legal codes, specifically mentions date wine and has some specific laws regarding um, the sale of wine. The Bible is full of references to uh, alcoholic drinks, including mostly wine. And in the Old Testament, it specifically refers to strong drink as saying, it gives courage and enables the poor to forget their trials and their troubles. Demonstrating it was even known then that alcohol was used to drown one's sorrows and to as a depressant. The Greeks were primarily responsible for spreading uh, for cultivating great grapes in the first place, and then it spread further uh, with uh, the Roman Empire. Plato, in the 5th century BC, uh, detailed some would recommend as correct behavior for the use of alcohol. And we'll get back to that in a moment. Getting back to the Greeks, again, the Greeks were the ones to first to widely cultivate grapes and use wine uh, throughout culture, it was, it was a revered drink and just drunk by all members of society, mostly the nobility. With the spread of Rome, the Romans spread the cultivation of grapes throughout the throughout Europe, throughout the, the Roman Empire. And the Greek god for wine was Dionysus. It was, he was known as Bacchus in the Roman times. And these are uh, on the on the left is a mosaic of uh, from about five. 5th century BC in Greece and the other is a, a, a detail of a plate from Greece of, of this god of wine. The story of Dionysus goes that he was the son of a mortal woman 
who was impregnated by Zeus. Uh, Hera, Zeus's wife, was was very jealous and killed Dionysus' mother while she, while he was still in the womb. Zeus saved the unborn child uh, and sewed him into his thigh, sewed him into Zeus's thigh for him to completely develop. So eventually Dionysus sprung forth from Zeus's thigh, a fully developed god. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you recall that Athena erupted from Zeus's head. So I guess Zeus had like gods like popping out all of his body, popping out of his head, popping out of his thigh, etc. Anyway, Dionysus was sent far away to uh, to be away from Hera, and he grew up in a in a valley. Uh, some say Egypt, some say Turkey, far away from from Greece, uh, surrounded by satyrs and nymphs and other creatures of the forest. And his playmates were leopards or cheetahs or tigers, and you always you always see him with with a leopard skin. Rubens, a Flemish painter, uh, contemporary of Caravaggio, uh, traveled to Venice during his, his training and was greatly influenced by Titian's radiant color and majestic forms. And Rubens included these in his paintings. Now this, this is Baroque. This is very, uh, this is a classic Baroque type painting. This is, this is really Baroque. I mean, it's so Baroque, it's, it can't be fixed. Rubens is described as injecting a lusty exuberance and a frenetic energy. And as you can see, there's definitely a lusty exuberance displayed in this painting, which belies Rubens' devout Catholicism. Dionysus, or Bacchus, became a favorite subject for Renaissance painting. This is a painting by Titian. Again, you see the, the, the leopards included, the odd animals included. It's always a feature included in, in pictures of, of, of Bacchus or Bacchanalian celebrations. Titian was one of the greatest painters of the Venetian school during the High Renaissance. He painted both religious and mythologic subjects. Uh, he's characterized by using use, by broad brushstrokes, and he blends uh, at the edges the bright colors. And one critic described him as more detail is seen by pulling back than by looking forward. By looking really close up, it's hard to see what's going on in the picture, but if you pull back to see the full picture, which is an excellent description of an Impressionist style, to actually paint to give an impression of the uh, of the scene. Titian, of course, was not, this is not an Impressionist painting, this is definitely a Renaissance painting, but the, his technique was well ahead of its time, 500 years ahead of its time. He lived about 1485 to 1576. Caravaggio, also an Italian, uh, he was a little bit later than, than Titian. He was 1573 to 1610. And whereas previous paintings idealized human and religious experiences, Caravaggio painted realistic naturalism. Now, this realistic display of humanity certainly caused a outcry at the time. You can see a very photographic-like quality to these paintings. Again, in conclusion, alcoholism affects all socioeconomic groups. Not just They're not just homeless drunks. It has a detrimental effect on most organisms, including cardiac, when taken in large amounts. Hypothermia is more severe. It's synergistic with alcohol intoxication for decreasing body temperature. As a sign for withdrawal, watch out for autonomic hyperactivity, tachypnea, tachycardia, hypertension, fever. And do a brief negotiated interview in the ER 
establish rapport, and offer referral for those patients that are ready. And you're not going to know who's ready unless you ask. The discovery of actually distilling beer or wine or some other uh, fermented drink and distilling down to the spirit, distilling the, the, the hard liquor, the, that process of cold collection distillation, the process of recovering the alcohol in a cooled container, uh, was discovered by Persian alchemists around 900 AD. Uh, this was the time of Razes. Muhammad Razes was one of the great physicians, along with, oh, I think, John Hunter of Britain and um, Galen of Rome and um, Osler of Canada, was one of the really great physicians of all time. And he recognized, uh, even then, some of the uh, damage to be to be done by, by liquor. Uh, he was a, a Renaissance man. He, he grew up in Tehran, uh, where he's still uh, recognized. Uh, August 27th, his birthday is recognized as Raze's Day or, or Chemist Day. He became the chief physician at Baghdad, where he did a lot of his writings. He wrote, Great damage is done by wine when it is abused and used regularly to get drunk. Delirium, hemiplegia, paralysis of the voice, croup, sudden death, acute illness, pains in the ligaments, as well as other illnesses that would take too long to list, attack the heavy drinker. Arnaud de Villeneuve, who lived in France, first advocated the use of alcohol for medical purposes, medicinal purposes, and recommended it used for a number of different ailments. Now, he basically promoted use of alcohol to make people more healthy, which, of course, it doesn't. Uh, and what do you get for this? Well, in France, you get your own hospital in your nephew. This is the Arnaud de Villeneuve Hospital in Montpellier, France. And um, named for a guy who promoted the use of liquor. Now, Diego Velasquez is a Spaniard, lived 1599 to 1660. He spent most of the time in the Spanish court, where he was the, the marshal and then the court painter. Diego is a master realist. Look at his, his figures in this painting. He, they have an intense life to them. They seem to have to breathe. There's a very photographic quality. Light is is picking up the color of the, of the two central faces, and one one figure is staring directly at the viewer in the center of the uh, picture. Now, in this case, Diego doesn't paint a purely mythologic scene. He has a very mythologic feature, Bacchus, which is in with the shirt off here in the center, and he is providing wine and providing grave leaves to what appears to be peasants or Spanish locals who are out for picnic having a great time. This painting is titled Los Parachos, or the drunkards of the drinkers. Look at Bacchus. It's very similar to Caravaggio's description or, or a depiction of Bacchus. That was interesting. Thank you very much for allowing me to talk about this subject. And I hope you uh, hope you learned some today. But let's go ahead and get back to talking about what we're talking about, which is alcohol.